very, very well. I'm just perturbed that Chris Wilder's lost his job, which is a shame. Yes, I've just heard, yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great game, our game, isn't it? Oh, you know, it isn't, and I'll tell you why. I, I've been doing this now for two and a half years. I had this idea to talk to people who have um, done books, and I've spoken to a few professionals and without exception, they've either been let go, they've had a fight with a chairman, a fight with a manager, they've had to leave the country. It's just, has anyone had the perfect football career? I would very much doubt it. I've not met anybody yet who has one. I think I'll have to keep asking then and keep following along. Um, I Get Knocked Down comes out on the 14th of October. It's by Danny Wilson. Uh, whom you should know from such clubs as Bury, Luton, Swindon Town, and both Sheffield clubs. Do you ever talk to Derek Dooley, or did you talk to Derek Dooley? I did. I met Derek on many occasions, yes. Um, whilst he was playing and also whilst I was managing. He yes. was um, on the board of Sheffield United at the time. and um, So, yes, I did. I bumped into Derek, a, a complete gentleman, lovely, lovely guy, and as a statue... Directed outside of uh, Bramall Lane as we speak. That is correct. Um, I, I did this piece about statues and I, I didn't know about Derek Dooley at the time, but for someone to have been at Wednesday as a player and then become such a big part of Blade's folklore, I, I think you and he must be some of the only two people that is uh, is both an owl and a blade. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, it is. I think it's, um, it's, it's quite unique in that respect, but... Um... Uh, I don't think that we had that in mind when, um, when we were offered to, to go to the opposite sides of the city. But, um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's quite a, a unique situation. And um, I would think that from, from Derek's point of view, he's absolutely a legend in, in the Sheffield area uh, and for both clubs as well, you know. So it's, um, to follow him, maybe not in the same footsteps, but to follow him is fantastic. Mm. No, it's just one of the things I noticed, and this will be a really condensed chat, because it's all in the book. I get knocked down. Uh, you've already been touring the podcasts. You're very keen to chat to people to shift some of this book. How many copies have been printed? Um, I think about at the moment about five thousand. I think perfect. And they will be winging their way to gift shops and club shops around the country. I hope. Are you doing various signings and talks with fan organisations as well? Well, there will be that. Yes, we will. We'll go to the clubs. I mean. Obviously, like as you know yourself, the, the amount of clubs I've played for and managed, you know, can see me doing it all year, yep. <laughs> visiting the clubs. We're hopefully going to go to um, at least five or six of the clubs that I've represented in one way or the other, um, and that's before the new year. Um, after the new year, maybe um, more will pop up. Yes, because of this break, this enforced break. If you and you played football for Bury and Chesterfield and Nottingham Forest and Brighton and Hove Albion and Luton Town and Sheffield Wednesday and Barnsley. You played for all of these clubs. If you were of the calibre to get an international cap for England and the World Cup happened in November, December, where would your psychology be? Because I'm trying to work out what Harry Kane is going to do for the next few weeks. Is he going to duck out of tackles? Is that going to help him? Because without Harry Kane, England will struggle. And a lot of the narrative in the next few weeks is going to be, oh, wrap him in cotton wool. So would that help or hinder you if you had a World Cup mid-season? No. I, I, well, personally, well, no. But I think that from the manager's point of view of the club football, you know, um, I, I don't think um, Conte, his manager, uh, will want anything other than 100% from from, um, uh, from Harry. And every every manager, you know, of, of every player that's going there will think exactly the same. They have a duty to the club, a duty to the fans, in fairness, to, to give 
and what will be will be. And I think players think that way as well. You know, I don't think they'd be you know half committed in in the league games with one eye on the World Cup. I don't think that that does happen. If I'm honest, I think they'll give everything for the for the for the club and then for the country. You know, hopefully they'll be they'll be going there injury free and uh, and give it all for them as well. So I don't think there's. I would not think that that would be the back of Harry's mind at this moment in time. I think he would, he would definitely want to finish on a high, um, finish you know with Tottenham, you know, uh, challenging for those top two or three places. Yeah, it is a nonsense that it's in Qatar. I keep saying this. It is. What did you have a reaction? Because at the time you were manager at Swindon Town in 2010 when the Qatar World Cup was awarded, you may have managed some international players at the time. It's it's, it's got a lot of. Contention, hasn't it? This, um, you know, the actual venue. Um, there's lots of things. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more that's going to be highlighted as well prior to the uh, the start of the World Cup. It's not an ideal place to go for all the the history that it's got, you know, in uh, human rights. But you know, it's what it is. It's, you know, the the players, you know, will go and have to play and, and perform for the country if the country's you know been um, accepted the 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 opportunity to go and, and um, play in the, in the World Cup tournament, then the players will just go and do the duty. I mean, they'll be a lot of opinions, uh, but once it's, you know, the, the whistle goes, the players will just play football what they're good at, you know, and, uh, and let the other side of the, of the argument and the debate take its own sort of form. Yeah, thank you very much for that. I know we're here to talk about I Get Knocked Down, which is the memoir of Danny Wilson. Um, born on New Year's Day... Do you know many footballers? But I know Steve Bruce is New Year's Eve. Um, but you would have always had to work on your birthday. <laughs> yes, I did, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't. I felt sorry for my mother, never mind anything else. But, um, yeah, it was um, yeah, it was always working, you know, over Christmas period. Players are just used to that. Uh, managing as well, you know, just used to that. In every day, we don't get the odd um, Christmas day off. Not always at certain clubs. They would, they would still like to train in the morning. And again, but on, on New Year's Day, it was always the same. No, no, no problem, New Year's Day, just get on with it. But so, you know, missed a little bit of a party time, never really went out on New Year's Eve, never celebrated New Year's Eve, and, and still really don't now. It's, it's just got used to not doing it, you know. So it's, uh, it's in front of the TV and the um, hoping it, watching the Indeed. TV. Indeed, Jules Holland's Hootenanny. There's actually a book, uh, your rival on the shelves this Christmas is the book celebrating 30 years of later with Jules Holland, but it also celebrates 30 years, uh, more or less. Uh, it was 94 you took over as manager, wasn't it? At yes, it was, yeah. Yes. So come, does it feel like 30 years-ish? Um, it, no, it doesn't whatsoever, no. Um, it's, it's still very very fresh in my mind. Um, there's lots of things like that, you know, in, uh, in, in the early football days. So, I uh, know it just seems like a flash. You know, we, we get to a certain age, don't we, now, and we just think, where's it all gone so quickly? You know, yeah. and, uh, so that's exactly the same, but I still remember, you know, a lot of it quite vividly. Well, and it's all in this book, which you will talk about and you have talked about on podcasts such as My Best Eleven, Under the Cosh and Chef United Way. So if you want even more Danny Wilson, there will be opportunities to hear him. Um, I, I just wanted to ask, firstly, it, it hit me that there aren't many famous people born in Wigan, but you're of a very similar age to Stuart McConey, the broadcaster. Uh, and Stuart, as well as uh, being into rare soul, northern soul, uh, is, a, is a Wigan Athletic fan. You came through at Wigan after you were released by Sunderland. But this would have been the era when you were a young person trying to make it as a professional footballer. But were you and your teammates and your friends able to go to Wigan Casino and all sing and all dance all night? 
Well, yes and no. Um, I'll answer that question. Um, yes, we went there. Um, I went as a young boy. I was, I think, it was about fourteen. I think when I first um, was allowed to even try and get into the, the casino itself, my friends were all a lot older than myself. But uh, when I had the first taste, I went about fourteen and um, got the um, uh, the barathea with the braiding on the outside of it. The gold braiding was mine. To stay all night was a bit a step too far for me, though. At that time, I was I was back home for midnight, I think, something like that. It was brilliant learning about it, that coaches would come in perhaps as far as the northeast because this was the yeah. literal mecca of club culture. And was it a fun time to work in the football industry? Because lots of people went to see, even down in the third and fourth tier, people would see, thousands of people would find something to do on a weeknight or a weekend. Oh, listen, it was, it was absolutely exhilarating in, in terms of the, the amount of people that used to come in the, and the atmosphere that was built in, in the Wigan area. I can remember going back to, um, to Bury when I eventually signed professional for Bury and getting on the train station at Wigan on a Monday morning and they'd be still strewn all over, the, you know, sleeping on, the, on the, the, uh, the chairs and on the benches, you know, after a night out at the casino and uh, they'd be getting on the trains going whatever direction they were going to and, um, you know, it was, it was fantastic at the time and uh, friends of mine were, were massively into, into it more than I was, into the Northern Soul. And um, and the, obviously the music was was absolutely fantastic from from my perspective. But um, no, it was yeah. You're right. They're saying they came from from every corners of of, yeah. of, of England to to go to the casino. The big year next year in the northeast is the golden anniversary of the Sunderland FA Cup win. Um, it occurs to me that you couldn't have gotten into the Sunderland side because most of the lads have. And I've written this about the Youth Cup. All the Sunderland lads who came through were just blocking the path of people like you. So is that why you were released from Sunderland or was it because you were from the North West and you wanted to go back there? Um, well, it was nothing to do with that really, John. It was, um, I think my age was, was not obviously, um, you know, conducive to playing your first year football at that time. I was only 15, 16 at the time. Um, I still had uh, pressure on to go and get a job, a proper job as my dad, mum and dad would say. You know, so um, that, that really didn't bother me at that time. Um, moving from, from Sunderland back home again. I mean, it was only really holidays from school that I went up to, to Sunderland. Um, so really, first year football never really beckoned up there for me. Oh. Um, it's really bad that I went to Wigan as a full-time player, really, um, and then on to Bury. And that were the times, really, that um, got me into the first team. There were the times that started when I was about 17. Did you see a young Gary Neville around Gig Lane? Um, I didn't know. No, I, I think Gary's quite a bit younger than myself. Um, and his father and uh, and his mother only came to the club at Bury uh, years after I oh, left. Okay. So unfortunately, we didn't cross paths. No. I see. And um, one of the earliest visitors uh, to the football library uh, was a guy called James Bentley, uh, who was wretchedly unhappy when what happened happened a few years ago. Would you get messages from Bury fans unloading their grief onto you as an ex-Bury player? when what happened happened? Um, I still know one or two people who, who are still supported, of course, and, and um, speak to them on the phone. Not, not necessarily through, you know, through a supporter not knowing me getting in touch. Um, there was quite a lot of um, polls going out at the time and, and opinions wanting to be heard by media and, and by you know, football agencies, etc., about the demise of, of Barry and what, what was going wrong and the owner and, uh, you know, what the opinion was, so I offered that at the time, 
that was about as near as I got to to being able to do anything. I think it was out of a lot of people's hands at the time. And, and again, it was just a source sad to see a club with such rich history go, go in, into the um, into oblivion like they did. And um, just lovely it is that they've just been able to buy the ground back, which I've mm. seen recently has, has happened. Yeah, and I think they're trying to amalgamate with the, at least this is what I heard last, with the Phoenix Club. Uh, but a town like Bury, and I, I went to Gig Lane in about 2017. It was Bury against Bradford, and no, you haven't managed either side. Uh, but you will have been to Valley Parade quite a bit, uh, including in the Premier League, right? 98-9, Sheffield yeah. Wednesday and Bradford were in the same league. That's correct, yes. Do you have happy memories of... Well, do you have happy memories of Bradford before and after the fire? Yes, very much so. I think, I mean, uh, again, a bit like the, the Leeds, uh, they might not forgive me, they might forgive me for saying this, but, but similar, very, very passionate fans. They've got a, a, a terrific fan base at Bradford. You know, like Leeds of as well, and um, and they get in, into the football club and go and support the team. Great, you know, they, they followed a, a little bit of a same, similar path that Barnsley did in getting the promotion back into the um, into the Premiership from their point of view. So um, we had some yeah, some, some tough encounters there, and, and have over the years. Unfortunately, you know, they're a little bit um, a bit like Barnsley were, where they you know they couldn't hold their own in the Premiership, and you know they have fallen down the pyramid a little bit. But um, Mark Hughes is there now and everything seems to be on the up again and, and it looks like they, they've got a great chance of promotion again this year. But we had some great games with them, yeah. And, uh, and there's some big occasions with big crowds there. Yeah. Um, rather than go through your playing career, which you will elsewhere, and you do in your book, I Get Knocked Down, which comes out on October the 14th, uh, Danny W Official is the place to go for details on signings and you're going to be doing a lot of gripping and grinning and recounting exactly what happened at Nottingham Forest in 1983. Uh, if you could sum it up in one word, just one word, your time at Forest. In one word, I would say frustrating. Good, OK, let's move on. Um, because yeah. there's, a, there's a story there that I'll have to... It seems like it, was, it would be cathartic, writing it down. Uh, but I will just ask, you join the shelves of the Football Library. I think the most popular person written about well it's one of three George Best Paul Gascoigne and Big Head and Brian Clough do you read books about Cloughy um, I've, um, I think I've read uh, I've read two I think if, if I'm right I'm correct um, but they were quite a few years ago I've seen recently a few of his um, videos and whatever I quite I still think they're fantastic I think I still think he's a, a terrific character and I think he's well worth listening to no matter you know how old some of the um you know, some of the videos or other uh, books are. Mm-hmm. But I'm more interested in, in the people you were managed by at the end of your playing career because you must have been thinking about going into coaching. Ray Harford at Luton, Trevor Francis, uh, another protege of Cluffy, uh, Sheffield Wednesday, and then Viv Anderson when you were assistant to him, another Brian Clough protege. Um, what did you learn from Harford, Francis and Viv? that you took into the, your first role at Barnsley when you became manager? Well, I think the biggest thing more than anything was, was about entertainment. You know, the, the great Brian Clough, he was always to say, you know, keep the ball in the deck, go and entertain the fans, etc., etc. And, and really that's one of the things that I took through, throughout my career. All the players that I played with, all the managers that I played under, very, had a very similar philosophy and... Um, and I think it was it was something that was correct because I, you know you're not going into a football uh, ground to bore the backsides off fans and get them home and maybe win one 0 and, and 
running through Trudger again the week after that. Um, we were there to try and entertain. And um, the good thing about Brian Clough and, and the likes of Ron Atkinson, Ron and uh, Trevor Francis, etc., was that they they hired good players, exciting players, and players that could put, put you on the edge of the seat. And um, and that's really what what I tried to take on board from my point of view. And and once I was training the, or coaching the players. And then when I watched the players, I wanted to be excited myself. I wanted to enjoy the game myself on the touchline. Well, absolutely, because you're being paid to be there. Uh, and you mm-hmm. were paid to be there for 1,066 games over 23 seasons. And it's hard to think of a dugout that you didn't manage in. Is your former Sheffield United captain, Michael Doyle, who is an assistant coach at Forest Green Rovers, would you have ever managed at Forest Green? Would you ever have gone to Nailsworth for an away game? Um, unfortunately not, no. Oh. I've been to the game, I've been to the ground to scout, but I've never been to actually manage or play. Yeah, uh, which which leads me into two things. One, your former captain is now a coach, and uh, I speak as a Watford fan, and what we treated Rob Edwards like was nothing short of disgraceful, uh, but that's Gino Pozzo for you. You've uh, worked under so many owners, not least Pete Winkleman, who convinced you to move to Milton Keynes Dons. Uh, where you survived and were then relegated. Uh, do you write about the owners that you have um, been paid by in the past? Because I think that is as important as managing the players. Managing upwards to the uh, boardroom is something that I'd like to read a lot more about. Yes, I do. I do speak about them. And, uh, and rightly so. You, you, you spot on what you're saying. You know, they're very integral parts of a very football club as you well know and um, you know they will have their, their ideas and their philosophies you know about their football club should be run and, and you have to respect that as well they're putting their money into um, to a project that they're, they're asking you to head up so it's, it's a very important partnership of course it is and, uh, and so I do write about them yes I, I write about quite a lot of them people come in as you, as you spoke about there I've, I've wrote in, um, ex- extensively about himself and, um, and his character and his, and his dream, what he had at Milton Keynes at the time. How did he sell you the dream? He, he, complete enthusiasm. He, he was absolute a cheerleader for the Milton Keynes, you know, full stop. He, he was just championing it all the time. He's, his face would light up, he had a beaming smile. He really, really, really deep down believed, you know, that his, his dream could come true. You know, putting this, this massive new stadium in, in the city. I thought it was a bit of a pipe dream, if I'm honest. And I'm, I wasn't sure whether they could see it through, but I, I didn't think I would ever be there anyway because I thought the longevity of it would, you know, would, would uh, last me and my my chance of, uh, of managing in the new stadium, you know. So I had a job to do prior to that, but I generally thought at the time it was a bit of a long shot, but um, proved that everybody wrong. You were living in Sheffield, or you were working in Sheffield, and then Bristol, which is a city I've still never been to. Um, Bristol is the old city with all the hills. Milton Keynes is like Manhattan. It's a grid. It's a weird city. Uh, was it personally having lived and worked in places like Chesterfield and Nottingham and Brighton, which must have been especially wonderful, and Luton, less so. I speak as a Watford fan. Because um, <laughs> you've travelled. How can a boy from Wigan... Uh, live in so many different places in the British Isles and also mix with so many people because every day you must have had to deal with someone uh, who was a supporter of a club and you've transplanted yourself into their city. It must have just been wonderful to meet so many thousands of people through work. Well, Johnny, I'm very blessed. <clears throat> and, uh, and you're right, so it was wonderful. 
to be trusted more than anything to, to look after the, the football clubs and, and their expectations of so many fans in different areas was, was, was fantastic from my point of view. Absolutely a different experience to everyone that I went to. Everyone had a different idea of, of uh, to play. Everyone had a different idea of where the club should be uh, or where they wanted it to be. And all the different accents as well, including mine. So, yes. you know, sometimes he couldn't even understand what I was saying if it was different down in, uh, in Bristol or whatever. But you, you talk about Bristol as well. Bristol was another fantastic city as well, very cosmopolitan. I loved every minute of it down there. Um, the fans were great with me as well. So, you know, we had a, we had a, a very small love affair down there for, for a few years. I think Nigel Pearson is just the right manager for that club. Stephen Lansdowne. Every year it seems that Bristol City, this is going to be their year. This is the one. We need a Bristol club in the Premier League. Um, and they've, they've got the right manager. Again, speaking of someone, Gino Pozzo fired. Was Stephen Lansdowne on the radar? Was he an investor at the, at the time you were manager? He was, he was on the board at the time. Uh-huh. And then by the time I left, he was, he was a chairman. Right. So, um, he, but he hadn't um, taken full control of the club at that, by that time. Uh, there was still a board of directors there, but... Um, since I left and a few years later, then obviously you go, yes, yes, full control of it now. But I've, I've bumped into him now and again. You know, it's um, it's not very easy, really. I think he, obviously, he lives, he lives um, in Guernsey, I think it is. Oh, okay. Jersey, uh, something like that. But, um, yeah, no, so I've not, I've not bumped into him. Only it's a game now and again. No, I'd, I'd love to learn more about Brizzle, Bristol City, and I, I must go because it was the centre of, again, another musical renaissance but just looking at before we move on to general points about management and the game you played for Chesterfield in the early 80s and you then went back to manage them as a kind of swan song after you went back to Barnsley uh, you managed Chesterfield how had football both on and off the pitch changed in between 1980 and 2015 and was it for better or worse that is a very very tough question and I think there's two sides to answer to that, really. I think, you know, I mean, has it changed for better or worse? I think both. I think I'll say, and I'll, I'll quantify that really by saying that in terms of, I think, the the way the grounds and, and everything and all the modernisation and the and the way that the sports science have taken off and whatever, yeah, that's a, a big uplift in, in football, particularly in the lower, lower divisions. I'm not talking about Premier League now. I'm talking about the lower leagues. What I don't think is it's helped a lot is a lot of the, the players coming in at the, lo- at the lower level at times want to be treated like they're playing in the Premiership, think they are Premiership players, and don't think they have to work as hard as some of these Premiership players are. They see them on TV and they think, you know, I can be like him, but they'll put the work ethic in. And I think that's, that was a big difference in, in that, is that the work ethic was, was always prerequisite from any, any player at any club. And I think sometimes it, it does... It falls off a little bit in the Premier League, in the uh, modern day football, not necessarily Premier League, but in maybe some somewhere along the line in clubs in there it happens. I'm sure it does. But mm-hmm. um, I think overall, you know, you, you've got to say it's, it's a lot better because of the facilities now that they have, and obviously the um, you know the way that that um, the media and the social media and everything is all promoting it. It's um, it's big big business now, which it wasn't as big as when I was playing. You retired from playing just when the tackle from behind was outlawed. The back pass rule had been put in place in 1992. So the game was different by the time you managed the international calibre of players because Bosman had come in. Uh, So when you were manager of, obviously, Barnsley, because you had uh, 
Was it Fjortoft under you? Or would you left yes. by then? Yeah, Fjortoft. No, yeah. I've spoken to Ian McMillan about Lars Laser and uh, and the great Varnsley uh, season in the sun. But yeah, the, the post-Bosman uh, onslaught of, of foreign players, would you have to meet with representatives of players you'd never heard of because they wanted to play in the Premier League and they saw Yorkshire as the place to be? And then you had to integrate them with, I don't know, Ariane Dezeu and uh, who was called Kevin Pressman and people like that. So it was a fun time to manage a football club. Well, it was in, in that respect, yeah. But I think the, the biggest problem at the time was it was we were getting we were getting players who weren't possibly as good as the as their English counterparts, but we couldn't get the English counterparts because we were costing too much money. And I think a lot of a lot of times we went abroad to get similar player if you like maybe not quite as good but for for cheaper prices and I think that was that was a first port of call for it when that started to take off and, and, the, and the foreign or overseas players came over then um, you know when you, you, you were forever inundated with, with agents and are the best player that they've ever seen and he's going to make football in England you know biggest Showstopper in the world and all this they were the best players ever and they got all better them over and they were just bang average so you know it was difficult because we didn't have the technology then to watch the players you know um, they might get the old clip of a video um, and you were lucky if that one you had to get them over physically to try and get them on trial but to get them on trial was another problem as well because they didn't want to come on trial just in case they were caught and, and wasn't taken on board they didn't want to give you a chance to say no. So, you know, so it was a, quite a dilemma at the time. And, you know, sometimes you, you had to go and, and listen to other people who'd seen them live. You know, um, I did a couple of times with a couple of lads at Barnsley. Clint Marcel was one I, I, I spoke to Bobby Robson about, who knew about him in, in Portugal. So little things like that was a big help, but it wasn't always forthcoming. You know, sometimes it was, so get them over if you can and, and, and take a little grip punt with them. Yeah, and then making sure they have the drive and the language skills. Did you have player liaison officers at the time? No, not oh. whatsoever. No, the manager did everything. He was a liaison, everything. Gosh, <laughs> I hope you were paid yeah. accordingly. In fact, I'm going to speak to, um, tomorrow, I'm going to speak to uh, Dick Chester. You know, you must know Dick Chester. I, I know him, yes. I don't, I don't know him personally, but I know him, yeah. Yeah, you know him through work, um, and he was... He was kind of the the unseen figure behind Sheffield Wednesday. Um, was he there when you were there? Uh, no, he wasn't. No. Oh, right, okay. But um, Sheffield Wednesday, manager of the month, January 2000. Uh, one, do you still have the trophy? And two, do you know who the player of the month was for that month? Uh, answer to the first one, I do have still have the trophy. Second one, no, I don't know who the player of the month was, no. Gareth Southgate. Wow. No, I didn't, I didn't know that. No. No. Um, has, has Gareth come to you for advice at any point? <laughs> no, he's not. No, I have. I've, I've, I've spoken to, uh, to Gareth on many occasions. I've been down um, to the England training sessions at, at St George's quite a bit. So, um, yeah, I mean, Gareth is a very approachable guy, as you, as you well know. Um, I've got a lot of time for him. I, I think he's done a great job with the England setup. Um, although at the moment in time he's under a bit of criticism, which I find find that difficult to understand, really. But um, yeah, no, he's he's a, he's a great guy, Gareth. And um, unfortunately, no, I didn't give him any any guidance at all into management. Thank thank God for that. He wouldn't have been where he is now. No, well, he may have taken England to a semi final and a final, but he didn't get Hartlepool United up from League Two. 
which is which is I think an even bigger challenge because you don't have Phil with respect you don't have Phil Foden at Hartlepool and you also have Jeff Stelling having a go at you every week on his <laughs> on his TV platform um these are these are certain there are certain figures in English football who are carved into the face of it like Jeff Stelling or Peter Drury or uh Mark Chapman, um, I just was wondering if in advance of your memoir, I Get Knocked Down, you had to read any manager's memoirs or your friend's books in order to learn what makes a good memoir. No, I didn't. Um, you know, it was, it was quite an unusual introduction to it, quite honestly, if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest. I've, I've been asked over years, over like maybe eight, nine, ten years, on more than one occasion to to think about it, and I said, no, I'm just not that type of person. I'm, I'm, I'm quite a private guy. So, I, you know, I don't, all my time when I was on the, on the touchline, you know, that was the open part of me. That was where people saw me. But when you, you know, back at home, I'm fairly private. So I didn't really want to get in touch with it. And then we had our first grandchild about three years ago, and um, the second one was, is, is now six months old. And um, I got a phone call again. She said, no, what about for the family? What about the, you know, for the grandchildren? They'll never remember you as a player. They'll not see you. You know, why don't you just write the memories for them? And that's how it came about, really. And um, I'm really glad I did it now. I, I didn't really look at it from that perspective. You know, I'm sure they could have watched a little of the old goal on TV and that would have been it. But, but at least I've got something to, to read back on now. Mm. Um, so that's, that's how I came about some mine. So not really by reading anybody else's. It was just... More a matter of of um, circumstance, really. What um, what maybe you know consider it? Yeah, and it's not just the kids. It will be fans of the twenty thousand clubs you've played for, or managed, or both. Steve Simonson, I was so sorry for him because I must have missed this at the time. But the League One playoff final against Huddersfield Town, who have fired their manager quite recently, you brought a player on to take a penalty, and he missed. Um, it got down to the goal because everyone scored in sudden death. It was goal, 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 goal. Smithies scored for Huddersfield. And then Simonson, who probably in his wildest dreams and nightmares would not have thought he'd have to take one, had yeah. to take one. How do you console, and this was his last ever appearance for Sheffield United, how do you console a goalkeeper who's played in the previous 49 matches that it's not his fault that Sheffield United haven't got promoted? <laughs> Uh, um, no, listen. I, I still, I still don't understand really why goalkeepers, you know, are part of the one to eleven when they take penalties. Maybe it's just for it's, it's for sure for the TV. Maybe for extra drama. But really, they're you know every day of the week, every afternoon of the week, you know, they're trying to keep the ball over there, not put it in it. And um, and I think from that point of view, I think it's very very harsh that a goalkeeper has to to step up and take one. Um, I, I just believe that outfield players are the ones who should be, you know, the ones who are committed to it. But um, in that particular one, you know, like you said, there's, there's not a great deal you can say. Um, a goalkeeper missing a penalty is, it, is that a bit more forg- forgivable in the people's eyes, you know, if, in, in supporters' eyes? Maybe it is, you know. But uh, but at the same time, he still felt, you know, the he was he was one that you know where he would um, the blame would fall. But um, from our point of view, we didn't, we didn't blame anybody. And when it comes to penalties, you know, we know it's, a, it's that type of lottery anyway. So it's, you know, it, over the season, we could have been in a position where we didn't have to be in a shootout, but uh, we weren't. 
Um, so we have to look, look at the whole season more than anything, rather than that at one particular isolated incident. Yeah, and it wasn't the first time that you'd lost a, a playoff final. But when you started playing football, there were no playoffs, or if there were, it was um, not as serious as it was in the late 80s. Uh, but you have yeah. played cup finals, and uh, you, you played against Arsenal, and you managed against the best. Do you, in your book, disclose, and it feels like when a Prime Minister goes on council with the Queen, after a match, you go in with Alex Ferguson or Arsene Wenger, or uh, Claudio Ranieri, or uh, whoever it is, Harry Redknapp, and you have a bottle of wine, or you talk about the horses, or whatever it is. Is that the best part, being a manager? It's not the 1066 games in the dugout telling the players where to go. It's meeting other people who do what you do. Would that not have been the most thrilling thing? Well, it is thrilling. It's, it's fantastic when you can come up against some of the names you just mentioned. Um, but I, I think what... what what is it? The most, um, I can say, hardy thing really is that to listen to them having the same problems that you have, maybe on a bigger scale at times, but simply having the same problems and having the same um, situations that, that come up on a daily basis, or or even upstairs with the with um, with chairman and owners. So that, that's the thing that you 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 look at, which you don't really expect. You know, you wouldn't expect that Alex Ferguson could have a problem with a player. You know, and he may have. You know, and Harry the same. You know, so um, that was that was always something that when when we came in after games and we'd have a chat and he played well today and oh your mate played well I buy but he's a bit of a nightmare type of thing. They say oh I didn't know that. You know, you you, you don't really understand it. They're, they're all spoke to you in, in privacy, obviously, but it does open your eyes now and again that, that uh, some of the problems that one or two of the, the big uh, the big boys have. Didn't Ferguson want De Canio? To replace Dwight York, I think there was there was talk of that. I didn't know that personally as, as a manager, but there was talk about it in the media at the time. Yeah, yeah. whether I actually that was, I don't know. But um, I think listen, there was a lot of clubs that wanted to cameo at the time. He was he was he was very very much sought after, you know. But um, at that time, they weren't going to get him until this this uh, this little episode raised his head. Yes, and the, the little episode is one of those things which has to be discussed. It's like. Uh, Coldplay playing Fix You. Di Canio must be discussed in the memoir of Danny Wilson. It's called I Get Knocked Down. It's out on October the 14th. A perfect present for fans of Berry, Chesterfield, Nottingham Forest, Brighton and Hove Albion, Luton Town, Sheffield Wednesday, Barnsley, Bristol City, Milton Keynes, Dons, Hartlepool, Swindon Town, Sheffield United, and indeed anyone with a passing interest in football as it was. Uh, Danny Wilson, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'll let you get back to promoting this book. Just like the library! Just like the library!